Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Walk around New York and take a close look at the architecture all over the city from courthouses and museums to cemeteries and libraries. You can find references to the art and architecture of ancient Greece and Rome. It's in arches and columns, in Latin inscriptions, in sculptures and monuments. It's in the facades of world famous buildings like Grand Central and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Even Rockefeller Center, known for its sleek and silvery Art Deco towers, pays tribute to Greek mythology. Prometheus holds a flame above the skating rink. Atlas gazes at Fifth Avenue with the world on his shoulders. A new book, Classical New York, Discovering Greece and Roman Gotham, co-edited by Professor Elizabeth Macaulay Lewis from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, explores how and why New York became a showcase for the visual language of the ancient world. I'm Beth Harpaz, editor of a CUNY website called SUM, sum.cuny.edu. And today I'm talking to Professor Macaulay Lewis for a podcast hosted by the Gotham Center for New York City History and New Books Network. Welcome, Professor Macaulay Lewis. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I think a lot of us think of classics as the study of this sort of arcane branch of ancient history. But your book really shows how classical influences are a huge part of our everyday experience. Tell us, first of all, how the book came to be. Well, this book kind of came out of many uh, of a group of scholars kind of accidental engagements with antiquity. Um, there are a lot of classical scholars in New York City. And uh, as we were kind of walking around in New York City, the way many of us do, not on our iPhones, not crouched over looking at our phones, <laughs> but looking up, um, I certainly, uh, as I had moved back from the United Kingdom, as I was about to start my job here at CUNY, I was looking around and I was struck by how many classical looking buildings there were. And in fact, part of this came from walking by the American Museum of Natural History and seeing that someone had clearly stuck the Arch of Constantine <laughs> to the central uh, Central Park, uh, central, sorry, I'll start again, the Central Park, Central, Central West, Central West, the Central West Park facade of the museum, which was so surprising to me because it was clearly Teddy Roosevelt, Lewis and Clark, Boone and Audubon, where there should have been Dacians and Trajan. <laughs> or Constantine. And so it was really confusing to me. But then I started to realize that this was a big, a big part of New York City. And then I was fortunate enough um, to be asked to go to a conference with Matthew McGowan, who's my co-editor of the book from Fordham University. And it was clear that there were a number of us who were interested in that Latin. Um, Matthew works on Latin inscriptions all over New York City. Mm -hmm. And so why there are these inscribed words, both in English and in Latin and in other languages all over New York. And why even are the are the dates of the buildings in Roman numerals? I mean, if you can't help but see that there's, you know, MDCVIII or whatever, you know, in the in the base stone of, you know, a building on practically every block in New York City. I mean, as a child walking around before you learn Roman numerals, and I don't even know if kids learn those anymore. You're like, what is that? What are all those letters? Like, why didn't they just say 1899 or whatever. Well, you know, part of that comes from the moment in which many of those buildings uh, were erected. Many of them were built 
in the 1880s, 1890s, and in the start of the 20th century. And at that point, you know, Latin cult, Latin, Latin language and classical culture were really seen to be the apex of kind of culture and the kind of root of European civilization, mm. uh, but also of American civilization, because America really saw itself through a European lens right. uh, in many ways. And so, of course, you're going to put things up in Latin numerals, because that shows you know Latin, even if you don't really know Latin. But that was one of the things that many New Yorkers felt that they should do. And that's not just a phenomenon in New York City. We see it all over right. the United States, right. whether you're in Chicago, which had the Columbian World Exhibition in 1893, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. But even if you go further afield uh, to the West Coast, you'll see this as well. So it's really all over the United States. And New York is kind of a microcosm of it. Right. And and I kind of interrupted you. You started talking about a conference, uh, you know, with uh, your co-editor. Yes. So there was a there's a great old organization called the New York Classical Club, which, again, was founded at the same time where people come together and they talk about classics. Do you guys they, wear togas? Uh, no, no, they're <laughs> not togas. Um, but there are spoken Latin and Greek recitation co- um, contests. Awesome. That's so, awesome. Um, it's still alive and well. And actually, there's a whole movement in classical studies towards spoken Latin and spoken Greek and learning those languages the way, um, which I don't really work on, but it's a kind of interesting phenomenon that's developing uh, right now. Um, But this conference, which uh, Matthew organized, uh, was a wonderful engagement. We had scholars uh, from all different backgrounds and training, classicists, architectural historians, uh, philologists, who were all interested in how New Yorkers saw antiquity as um, a reference point, a very fluid and flexible reference point from which ancient Greece could be pulled out. Um, ideals of democracy, ideals of empire, luxury, um, funereal ideas could all be brought together and then reutilized and repurposed for New York City as it was kind of finding its own vocabulary in terms of art, architecture, and words to express itself as a new major metropolis as it became, as, as New York came into its own as a city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Um you know, one of the most interesting aspects of the book for me was was understanding in a sort of a sudden way, because I'd never really thought about it before, the intellectual and cultural rationale for integrating all of these references to the ancient world into New York City um, and, and kind of realizing it wasn't just about aesthetics that, oh, this sculpture would look so pretty on this building. And it wasn't about engineering. Oh, we need an arch to hold these, you know, this structure up. Um, that when architects and institutions and city officials or a college president or a library founder or something, when they put it a reference to ancient Rome in their building, they were saying something very specific about their purpose, their goals, um, you know, their aspirations, and, and also about the city itself. And and maybe you can kind of give us a, a specific example of a building, you know, where there where there was this context in, in the minds of the the builders and the designers that they wanted it to represent something. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to say it and to raise this point that it's not just about aesthetics, it's not just engineering, but there's also significance and meaning and all that. In many ways we see in some of these buildings, they all come together. And it's those three elements. And a great example of that is the old Penn Station, which everyone bemoans its demise. Um, all of us who spend any time in Penn Station agree. Um, so, and just for listeners who may, you know, be younger and maybe don't know. So, you know, we all know that Penn Station is this really miserable uh, train station, you know, aesthetically, logistically, it's a nightmare. Um, but there was a Pennsylvania station uh, that was torn down uh, in, in the mid 20th century, that was very beautiful. I, although I lived in New York city all my life since the 
1960s. I have no no experience with the original Penn Station, but it actually, its destruction gave rise to the modern preservation movement in the United States. And in fact, Grand Central would have been torn down and there was, there were plans to tear it down, but because Pennsylvania Station had been torn down, uh, none other than Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, the first lady, uh, uh, sort of spearheaded the movement to save Grand Central and kind of, um, you know, uh, I, I guess launched the preservation movement. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some earlier preservation, but that is really when it gets going. And and actually mentioning Grand Central and Penn Station, we can kind of talk about them together in a way, um, because both of those buildings uh, were built at almost the same time, both by different railway systems, by the Pennsylvania um, Railroad system, and then um, New York Central, uh, kind of two competing uh, net, two competing networks of getting people in and out of New York City. But both of them decided to build these very grand stations, although Grand Central Terminal is, of course, a terminus where trains stop. So I'm going to call them stations just for ease, yep. but important because I know there are train buffs out there. Yes, who will say, don't call it Grand Central Station. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And I'm with them on that. However, for ease, <laughs> okay. we'll go with that. Okay. But in both cases, what we found, what we see in these two buildings is that um, aesthetically, it was very attractive. You have these grand, the grand architecture of the Roman baths, these imperial baths that were the biggest, most fabulous buildings built by the Romans. And they are feats of engineering. They are the most technologically advanced structures from antiquity of their era, um, built with brick-faced concrete and creating vast enclosed interiors. One of the things that the Romans did so well was create interior space. If you go back to before them, nobody really uses the arch effectively. And the Romans figure out that if you take an arch and you spin it on its axis, you get a dome. And once you can do that, you can do amazing things with interior space. You really can create, you know, buildings that are 125 feet tall, you know, things that they had never been able to do before that you don't see in the Greeks, you don't see in the Egyptians, you don't see in, you know, South America, you don't see in Asia. It's a remarkable thing that the Romans did. So technologically, these buildings are very advanced. Aesthetically, they're fantastic. Uh, they are filled with marble and sculpture. Um, so the ancient baths are technologically advanced. They're beautiful structures. And then they're also a symbol of either the emperor or the city who erected them. So in this case, the Baths of Caracalla, which was the model for Penn Station, was an expression of the emperor Cal Caracalla's uh, kind of greatness. He wasn't really a great emperor. Actually, he's pretty <laughs> horrible and gets murdered. However, the baths were great. Um, and there's this great saying actually about Nero, who is, you know, one of those emperors that everyone knows and is a, is a kind of horrible character who's vilified, who may or may not have watched Rome while it burned in 64 CE. But there is this line, um, I think from the poet Marshall, which says, you know, what is, who is worse than Nero, but what is better than his baths? Mm. So the baths are these spectacular things. And the architects of the late 19th and early 20th century realized that the baths were fantastic and would be a great model. Not only would it bring gravitas to the railroads that were trying to erect them, but also in terms of engineering, um, these baths had similar, bat, uh, but also in terms of functionality, the baths have a similar set of issues the train stations do. It may not be apparent when you first think about it. You're like, what does a bath have to do with a train station? Mm -hmm. But in fact... Baths had to move huge numbers of people in and out every day mm -hmm. and through specific times. So if some of the largest baths in Rome, like the Baths of Caracalla or Diocletian, which are a little bit later, um, they have to move six or seven or 8,000 people through them on a daily basis through a set series of rooms. Mm -hmm. 
train stations need to get a lot of people in and a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we know Charles McKim did when he was designing and, and thinking about, well, sorry, one thing we know that Charles McKim had done before he actually started to build Penn Station was he had been to the Baths of Caracalla and he had put workers in different places and moved them all around. Hmm. So he had actually been to this, this, this ruinous site, had thought about it, had tried to figure out how you'd move people through it. And then when he goes to design and build Penn Station, he takes some of those ideas from this very direct engagement and applies them to building Penn Station. Mm -hmm. So what we can see is not only is there this kind of aesthetic grandeur that says, wow, this railroad is amazing, but also there's a very functional, practical side of it. Mm -hmm. um, so we see the grandeur of the railroad. It's aesthetically pleasing, but it also works, which is not always the case in all of these buildings. But it does show us that this engagement is, is not superficial. It's right. not just kind of like, I want something that looks pretty. It's, I want something that's, that's beautiful, but also something that really works and will show how good it is to take the train. It, it makes it glorious. It makes it an experience. And right. you have that experience still when you go into Grand Central today. Yes, absolutely. Um, where you don't have that in Penn Station. Although, who knows, with the new right. Penn Station that's coming, that's in the old Farley Post Office, maybe the experience will be a bit better. Right. But we'll all have to wait and see. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, now, in addition to editing the book, you contributed a chapter about what you say is New York's greatest forgotten architectural masterpiece. Uh, and of course, you're a professor at CUNY, and this building that you talk about happens to be on a CUNY campus, not the one you work at. But tell us the story about this uh, forgotten architectural masterpiece and its connection to CUNY. So uh, the building I wrote about, and this is probably my favorite building in New York City, is the Gould Memorial Library. This library was designed as the centerpiece of New York University's uptown campus. Uh, this was built in the uh, 1890s. And what had happened was uh, the president, the, what had happened was the chancellor of New York University, Henry, uh, Henry Mitchell McCracken, had decided that uh, undergraduates should not spend time near Washington Square because it was far too distracting. So he decided that he would buy and create a new campus uptown. And so he bought land. Um, actually, it had been, I think, the Belgian resident, the Belgian ambassador's country estate or something like that, um, up in what is now known today as University Heights in about the 180s and 190s, um, up in the Bronx. And he bought this campus and he got Stanford White to design this spectacular library that looks like uh, the Pantheon in Rome. And Stanford White, of course, was the preeminent architect of his day, right? Absolutely. And, you know, he was the partner of um, Charles Follett McKim, of McKim, Mead and White. So you have, you can also see that the leading architects, the people right. who kind of- The just, superstars. The rock stars, the, yeah. the star architects. Right. The star architects um, of, the, of their day. Of their day um, were the people you would look to and he was going to build it. He built it partially because his father had gone to NYU um, and so he designed it actually free of cost. He did it wow. out of a legacy. Nice. Um, and this building is pretty spectacular because you go up to it and you go in and you ex you're not quite sure what to expect and you go in and it's exactly like being in, it's not exactly like, but it's very similar to being like in the Pantheon in Rome. And wow. for many in the Bronx, you in the can Bronx. experience the Pantheon in Rome. And if any of you have seen the greatest showman, 
which is the uh, fictionalized version of P.T. Barnum's life, there is a party scene that that goes on in there. Oh, wow. Um, so if you're looking and there's a big scene and every all of the circus performers kind of burst in, that's the Gould Memorial Library. Right. And of course, let's say right now, what's the CUNY connection? And of course, the CUNY connection is this is now part of Bronx Community College. So NYU um, sold its uh, New York University, its New York, uh, sorry, NYU um, sold its uptown campus uh, to CUNY by the state in the 70s uh, when uh, basically NYU almost went broke. And it then became the core part of Bronx Community College. And what's interesting today is that really there's a lot of work going on at Bronx Community College about the library and also the Associated Hall of Fame. There's a whole group of which I'm a part who are working on the archives connected it um, and also understanding what this Hall of Fame is, which is a stat, which is a colonnade that has a series of statues erected to great Americans. And particularly for today, when we're trying to figure out what it means to be an American and people are using the language of making America great again, it's for us an opportunity to think about why these people were selected, what was the process, what are the goals. And some of these figures are quite controversial. And what do they mean in our landscape today? And what does sculpture and art mean um, in light of everything that's happened over the last couple of years with regards to Civil War monuments, these statues, some of which include, you know, Richard, um, which include Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, these are people who, you know, are controversial. Right. And others are, are maybe just not well known or, or understood in a contemporary way. I mean, I happen to be a fan of the poet Longfellow, and I was very pleased to see his bust in, in the colonnade up there. But, you know, my 21-year-old son might know who Longfellow is, but probably wouldn't think that he deserves to be among, what, 30 busts in this little thing. But the the point is, any of us can go up to the campus at Bronx Community College, take the subway right up there. And, you know, you you every CUNY campus has its own personality. But this one in particular looks like an Ivy League campus. I mean, you could be on the quad at Cornell uh, you know, as you're walking across the green and you behold the Gould Memorial Library with its dome, you know, and this beautiful, you know, this this beautiful structure. So, so tell us more about the library and what, you know, we talked a minute ago about not just the aesthetics of the building buildings and the the uh the engineering the design of the buildings the logistics of the buildings but their significance so why why did this nyu chancellor or president want this building to look like a building from antiquity well part of it was that he wanted nyu to really be the leading university in new york city and so what he figured was he needed a really good looking campus and he really needed a library at the core of that to, to show that, in a sense, um, NYU belonged to this upper echelon of universities, partially because there is a tradition of round libraries at august institutions. Uh, you can think of the Rotunda at the University of Virginia uh, and also the Radcliffe Camera at Oxford University um, and uh, the British Library, for example, the original British Library. And so... Because of these references, a circular structure would would give a, a circular library would visually signify to well-educated people, people who might be donors and patrons of the university, that that NYU belonged in that group. Um, it helped them get, I think, money for it, which is um, Jay Gould, who was a famous robber baron. His daughter donated the money. Um, but what's also interesting is that at almost the same time. 
Columbia University also gets a round, vaguely Pantheon-like library that Charles uh, McKim designed for Seth Lowe, who was the president of Columbia. So you also start to see that these forms are also in competition and that everybody thinks these are the things that you're supposed to have, regardless of whether or not they work well as a library. Because mm-hmm. having spent a lot of time in round libraries, <laughs> they don't work very well. Why is that? Um, well, certainly the Radcliffe camera at Oxford, um, it's hard to get the books. The books don't fit around the sides well. Right. It's very drafty. Right. The light is difficult to deal with. Right. And so you actually sit there and you go like, well, this doesn't work really well. That one is a <laughs> library, but it looks fantastic. And so that also speaks to, at least in this building, a kind of interesting tension between the, signif- the significance of the building and its forms and the decoration I mean, um, and the functionality. In the case of the Gould Memorial Library, it has all these wonderful inscriptions with names of people like Confucius or um, Macaulay or Horace um, or all of these different scholars and poets who you should be inspired by, as well as inscriptions from Milton and the Bible and sculptures of the muses to encourage you to learn. Mm. So there's kind of this program that also you should go in as the student and you'll come out as one of these august learners who's going to go change the world. Um, It just might be kind of cold and not so easy to read in the library. (laughs) But we won't let that get in the way of anyone's education. (laughs) All right. Um, let's, uh, Let's deconstruct one or two famous places that our listeners might be familiar with. And maybe you can give us a few things to look for next time we're there. Um, we haven't talked about the New York Public Library. And, you know, when you what they it's so beautifully lit in the evenings now. Uh, our The building that we're recording this podcast in is right on Fifth Avenue. And if we just walk, uh, you know, seven or eight blocks uptown, we walk right past the New York Public Library. Uh, and I mean, it, it it is such a grand and beautiful building as you walk past it and you know sort of gentle glow from within and the columns and you know the the I don't know the right word for it but the the overhanging structure the yeah. horizontal over it, it it's absolutely beautiful tell us wh- how is it wh- what is the reference there to antiquity and and kind of what was the context for deciding that this building would be you know the the library for New York City at the moment that they that they upon this design. Well, so of course, the main branch of the New York Public Library, today known as the Stephen Schwartzman Building, uh, was formed out of three collections, uh, the Lennox Collection, the Astor Collection, and then um, uh, an endowment from Samuel Tilden. And um, the two libraries were kind of separate. And there was this movement in the kind of all through the progressive era that there should be public libraries and they should be accessible because this is how you have an informed public. And an informed public was one of the reasons why people build all these sculptures, uh, build sculptures and buildings like this, because they want people to have access to knowledge, but also to have these buildings inspire and bring people up. This is part of the city beautiful movement and the idea that urban form can make people better people and better citizens and more engaged. So it partially comes from that. But then also, if you're going to have those ideas, they need to take architectural form. And so the main way when you go into the entrance of New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue is through basically these three grand arches, and it evokes a a Roman triumphal arch. And if you look at the top, there are sculptures of personifications, and then there are inscriptions. They're not written in Latin, but they're written in English using actually probably the font that came from the um, Forum of Trajan. Uh, Because actually, we know Stanford White used that one a lot, but it's one that everybody seems to use. It's very consistent. It's very clear. But it's also very grand. And what's interesting here is that we see those in, those inscriptions and we can read. We see that 
Lennox and Astor donated the books and that Samuel Tilden gave the money. Um, and so it also reminds us that that education is valued and you need a grand architecture to express that, to go into it and then to be awed and inspired as you go in and then you can be inspired to learn. So part of that is that facade has to articulate and announce this to everybody. And being by such a big grand building, you would pay attention if you were walking by and you would say, oh, wow, I can go in there. I'm a citizen. At the same time, Andrew Carnegie was sponsoring um, libraries all over New York City because mm -hmm. he was a great reader mm -hmm. um, and really felt that that was very important. Now, there's one other thing that's really interesting about the New York Public Library site that not everybody knows. Mm -hmm. It sits on the old uh, distributing reservoir for the Croydon Aqueduct System. Mm -hmm. And that building was built like an Egyptian temple. Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's wacky. It's huge. Um, but what is interesting to me is that on that one site... First, there was a building that looked to antiquity, but Egypt, and then it was replaced by something that looked to the architecture of Imperial Rome. And that reminds us, uh, the Croydon Reservoir was finished, I think, by 1842. Um, and it reminds us that in the early part of the 19th century, and also at the early part of the 20th century, antiquity was this thing that New Yorkers could look to and kind of cherry pick ideas and ideals out of to find an intellectual language and also an architectural and artistic vocabulary to create structures that become defining to New York City. If we didn't have a reservoir and an aqueduct system, New York couldn't develop because people would have cholera. They'd be getting, you know, waterborne diseases. So it was a huge to-do that you could have that. And then the fact that you have an ability for your population to educate themselves if they're working um, all during day, but they have the access to go in to take books, to study, and to learn. And, and New York Public Library's research collection is still second to none. It's fantastic. That, that it shows us what New York valued and what it still values and what it's interested in, um, but that also that those values need to have good architecture to go with them. And I think, you know, for me as a New Yorker, one of the things that I I kind of learned from uh, from the book, not just your chapter, but, you know, uh, reading, you know, through some of the other chapters, was this idea among uh, New York's, um, you know, sort of the 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 class of architects and and uh, funders and and the officials who made these buildings possible at the turn of the 19th 20th centuries this idea that somehow new york was like the equivalent of rome in the united states okay we weren't the you know the political capital because that's washington dc right but we're the cultural capital we are the financial capital you know all roads lead to new york really just the way all roads you know in a previous civilization led to Rome, that we are kind of the, you know, we're the ones holding uh, the torch aloft uh, for America, just in terms of our being this grand metropolis. And so that in, you know, in incorporating some of these references to the greatest civilizations of all time, that we were saying like, yep, and that's New York, we are the greatest, you know, the greatest symbol of the civilization of the United States in terms of the arts, culture, everything having to sort of come through New York. That's exactly right. And and what you said is actually rhetoric that people at this time very much even used. Um, there are these wacky places called lobster palaces, which are restaurants that are right around Times Square and Broadway. And in one of them, there was one called Murray's Roman Gardens. It specifically says... <laughs> Murray's Roman Gardens. Oh, it's I fantastic. I mean, it's just all over these insane over-the-top so interiors. But what's interesting is they specifically say, we've done it better. We have made New York. New York has all of these things. It We can even recreate 
all the ancient gardens, the ancient villas, the ancient houses in New York, and we'll do it better because we are as good as the rest of you. Um, and that reminds us, though, that New Yorkers saw themselves as being in this tradition. And it was that this tradition was the one that you had to keep up with and you wanted to surpass. And that is what New Yorkers did. And we see this from whether it's the Customs House, which is now called mm. Federal Hall mm. down on Wall Street, which mm -hmm. is one of the first mm. buildings ever built that's really a kind of testament that New York has arrived mm -hmm. um, to, you know, uh, Rockefeller Center, which still mm -hmm. has Atlas and Prometheus, as you mentioned, right. uh, that people are always referencing and taking pictures of. Right. And Atlas has, you know, got this own iconic life of his own that he's on the cover of books. He's on the cover right. of everything. Right. He's, he's in the entrance, you know, he's in the, the credits for 30 Rock, the TV show. Right. Because he almost symbolizes another aspect of New York's architectural life. And of course, he doesn't necessarily look classical, but he's Atlas and we all know who he is. Right, right. And, and actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about Rockefeller Center. Um, I worked there for a number of years uh, before I came to CUNY. Uh, I was a journalist for the Associated Press and they were one of the original tenants at Rockefeller Center, moved into what was called the AP building at 50 Rock. Rockefeller Center was actually uh, a communications center. You know, NBC was also there, Radio City, because it was the center for radio. Um, there were publishers there. Um, and it's funny because in the years that I worked, there, I always thought of it as such a modern 20th century thing, you know, those beautiful, sleek uh, uh, skyscraper buildings. Um, and at the AP building, in fact, there's this very beautiful sculpture above uh, the doorway to 50 Rock. It's now a bank, sadly. Uh, and people walking by might look at the sculpture and say, what does this have to do with the bank? It's uh, by the Japanese artist Isamu Noguchi. And this sculpture depicts journalists. They are they're writing, they're on the phone, they're taking pictures, they have a, a, a little uh, recording device. Um, and that sculpture always seemed so modernist to me. Um, and so, it, you know, of course, I, I walked by Prometheus every day and walked by Alice every day and understood that there were also these references to, you know, the classical world, but never really thought about like, the heck are they doing in this place that when, you know, when John Rockefeller built this in the middle of the Great Depression, the middle of Manhattan, the finest, most spectacular urban development ever seen? Why? How did he, where's the, is, is it not incongruous to have these classical references in this thing that was the most modern thing of its time, the most sleek and modern thing of its time? G give us some explanation for that. So one of the chapters in the book deals with this specifically, the one by Jared Samard. And what is interesting is that, of course, Rockefeller had a very classical education. He studied um, uh, Latin and he also did a lot of classes on um, classical art when he was at Brown. Um, but what was interesting to him, or what we might see is interesting about certainly Prometheus and Atlas, is that they are they're minor myths. They're not ones in antiquity that are big. Really? Yes. It's always a surprise to everyone. That everyone, is really surprising. Because we all know about Prometheus. Right. But now Prometheus is interesting because he brings fire, right? Right. Fire is technology. Right. So one of the things that you could see, and this is kind of the argument that Jared makes, is that Rockefeller Center is all about technology. Right. It's about new ideas. It's about new forms of communication. Right. right. So rather than, I mean, the, the, the Greek gods hate Prometheus because he gave humans something that, you know, only the gods have. Wow. But if you look at it as another way, That's which cool. is that Prometheus brought something we needed. Well, Rockefeller is bringing radio, technology, all of these things, as well as jobs and things like that at that moment, that maybe there's that reference there. So it's a more positive way of looking at Prometheus. Also, it's interesting if you look at Prometheus, he looks very classical. When you get to Atlas, Atlas is in the modern world. He is 
highly muscular. He looks Art Deco. He looks like he could be a modernist creation. He's not what you expect from really a classical form. But also, if we think about what Atlas is doing, he has the weight of the world, actually the armosphere, I believe is what it is, on his shoulders. And in many ways, perhaps that's what Rockefeller and the whole organization felt. They were lifting up and supporting mm. New York mm. at that very moment. Wow. I mean, if you think about building Rockefeller Center in the Great Depression, right. and he had to build it partially because he got settled with, he had, he had to rent the land from Columbia um, because originally it was going to be the site of an opera house, and he got stuck with this land. He employed huge numbers of people who then, as a result, fed, you know, large portions of right. New York people. New York was able to survive because he built this building. Right. Um, so I think those two sculptures in and of themselves speak to how Rockefeller may have seen himself, but also how myth translates into the modern world. Mm -hmm. Now, you were saying that there are journalists, but if you go around, and I recommend you should go around looking at all of the entrances, mm -hmm. you will find, you know... Mercury or Hermes, depending on which way you want to call him, who is the god of travelers, the god of messengers, mm -hmm. you know, also stuck up there. Right. So with some of the other buildings, like there was the um, there was the um, British building and the international building, they were also designed to encourage trade um, with other um, with European countries and other countries like that. So as a result, there's also this trade dynamic, um, which is central to that, and the economics of the location too. Um, so we can see where the art program, which, you know, really needs more studying and more work on, um, was really quite sophisticated. And this shouldn't be surprising because also a Rockefeller's wife, Abby, was central to getting the Museum of Modern Art set up. Which and is two blocks away, by the way. So the other thing is we can really, it, it helps us to understand how core the Rockefellers were to creating some of the cultural institutions that we take for granted, but also for really shaping some of our our perception of these myths and the way that we look at our own city. Right, right. Very, very, very well put. Um, all right. Give me uh, maybe a, a hit, another hidden gem or two. I mean, we talked about the Gold Memorial Library being a kind of a hidden masterpiece in New York City, um, a place that really shows off some classical influence in New York City, but maybe a place that the average person, even if they live here, uh, has never seen, or, or, or if they've been there, maybe they haven't looked at it with an eye to the classics. Well, so one example I would say, and I'm going to, I'm going to take us off Manhattan okay. um, because it's easy to get stuck in Manhattan. Yeah. And I'm going to take us for a moment, even though this isn't in the book, but I think everyone should get on the Staten Island Ferry. Okay. And go to Schnug Harbor. Okay. Um, that is another example of these beautiful Greek revival buildings. It's on the, the North shore of Staten Island. It was a retirement community. Uh, it was set up for retired sailors. Mm -hmm. And these are these spectacular uh, Greek revival building. So it looks like there are five Greek temples all in a row. Wow. And so it was a dormitory and there were public halls and it's now part of, there's a kind of public park and botanical yeah, gardens. It's a cultural center It's there. a cultural center yeah. there now. But that's one thing people don't think about. Right. Or ever have ever seen. Right. And that's probably in terms of a group of buildings, the best example of Greek revival architecture in the United States. And Incredible. it's just across on the Staten Island Ferry. Yeah. And, and who created it? So it was created by, um, oh goodness, now I can't remember his name. Um, so this may not be the best one to do. I can't remember his name. Um, <laughs> it was created by a retired merchant okay. um, who felt that everyone who had sailed around and had been involved in trade, and of course, trade was critical to the U.S. The, uh, to New York City. New York City was the biggest harbor on the East Coast. Um, that they should have a retirement place. So he had a large amount of land uh, right by Washington Square, and eventually they sold the land there and used that as the endowment to support Snug Harbor. Okay. So Snug Harbor. Um, 
I think he felt that people should have a good place to retire. Yeah. Um, and, and, so, and so aesthetically, just... I mean, it's a kind of combination of two things, probably. The first thing is, um, at that time, Greek revival was very popular because it seemed to embody the ideals of the new nation, uh-huh. Greek democracy. Uh, in the 1820s, the Greeks had fought for independence. Um, and so many Americans either financially supported that movement or felt a kinship with the Greeks who were fighting the Ottoman Turks. Um, but also that that was architecture that was used in the domestic sphere. So if you walk along the north side of Washington Square Park, you will see wonderful brick townhouses with lovely little porticos and they're ionic and they're Doric columns. Right. And that was part of the language of the domestic sphere. But it was also the language of public architecture, like the Customs House or Federal Hall today. And so perhaps this is kind of a merging of those two ideas Mm -hmm. in that you have a space that kind of shows off someone's virtue and kindness by creating a retirement community, Mm -hmm. but it's also domestic architecture. So you can kind of bring those two ideals together. So that's one place you can see it. And I think the other place that's great to go see stuff is the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Arch uh, that is in Brooklyn, that is right by the entrance to Prospect Park mm-hmm. and uh, Brooklyn Public Library. Right, it's Grand Army Plaza. Grand Army Plaza. Yeah, and the, the train goes right there. The 2-3 train goes right there. But that's an interesting monument because it doesn't celebrate the great men. It's really designed to celebrate the individuals who were the veterans from the Civil right, War. The people. The people. And if you look at the sculptural groups, which show basically the Army and the Navy with the genius of patriotism, they're all normal soldiers. And Grant and Lincoln are only inside. Oh, that's neat. They're in two base reliefs underneath the central arch. So yeah. they're secondary to the average soldier who would have fought or the average sailor who would have fought. And I think that's a really interesting monument to look at because it reminds us that, and that was, that was paid for by, uh, the Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn's, uh, by Brooklyn before it became part of Manhattan. It was paid for by the city. Uh, it was paid for by the city of Brooklyn. But it reminds us that it wasn't just about celebrating the great men. It was also about celebrating these individuals. Um, you'll see that if you walk around there, there are little little round rolls that show the different insignias from some of the different uh, regiments mm, who fought. Interesting. Um, and part of this comes out of many of those veterans were starting to pass away at this point in time. But people wanted to remember their regiments, their families. And so this monument was focused on the collective rather than the individual. Wow. Well, that's cool. That's cool. And of course, it remains a, a sort of a central uh, plaza in in Brooklyn. A number of neighborhoods uh, kind of connect right there. A number of institutions, the public library is right there. Just up the street is the Brooklyn Museum and, and the Botanical Garden. Prospect Park is right there. And it connects to Union Street, of course, the Union Army prevailed in the Civil War. So it's all it, it all tells a, a very grand story about uh, history and, and cultural institutions and, uh, you know, kind of, I think, the coming of age of, of Brooklyn uh, in, in the late 19th century. So that's that's a neat place to go and look at it. And it's, and it's so beautiful. It's just across the street. You get this incredible view of how grand and, and enormous it is. So that's a good one. That's definitely a good one. All right. Um, I've been speaking with Elizabeth Macaulay-Lewis, a professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, about her book, Classical New York, Discovering Greece and Rome in Gotham. Thank you, Professor Macaulay-Lewis. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I hope everyone checks out the website, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you. And I'm Beth Harpaz, editor of the CUNY website, SUM, sum.cuny.edu, signing off for the Gotham Center for New York City History and New Books Network. <laughs>